Hello, suspense seekers and crime fanatics. This is your host, Naz, and I thank you for joining me today on another episode of Crime Stories of Pakistan. I hope all of you are well and safe, especially during these difficult times of violence and chaos in the world. Our hearts go out to all the victims of the horrible crimes happening around the world, and may we take a moment of silence to reflect. So today I'm going to share a story with you that made national headlines in Canada and international headlines a decade and a half ago. Think back to high school days when all you really wanted to do was hang out with friends between classes, have your crush notice you and give you attention, occasionally skip class and go to the mall and maybe buy outfits or other things that were in fashion. Well, just like any other teenager, our case today is about a Pakistani-Canadian high schooler who just wanted to fit in and be normal. On Monday, December 10, 2007, a 911 call was made from the Longhorn Trail House in Mississauga in the early morning hours of the day. The person on the phone was Muhammad Pervez. Quote, I have killed my daughter with my own hands. Unquote. 911 is the number to call in an emergency in Canada. This alerts the police, fire department, and paramedics, depending on the situation. The dispatcher contacted local police, and they quickly arrived at the home, only to find the lifeless body of a teenager facing upwards on a bed with blood coming out of her nose. She was quickly rushed to a hospital in Toronto called Sick Kids Hospital, where she was holding on to her life for a few hours before she was pronounced dead. So who was this girl? What had happened in this house? Why did she have to die? These are the questions that despite getting answers to, still don't make any sense. This is the story of Aksa Pervez. Aksa Pervez was born on April 22, 1991, in a Muslim household. She was the youngest of eight siblings. Her father, Muhammad Pervez, and mother, Anwar Jan, immigrated to Canada in 2001 from a small village of Mianapura, I believe that's how you pronounce it, in the Punjab province. Muhammad first came to Canada with his eldest son. And in order to get his entire family to Canada, Muhammad Pervez, who I will refer to as Muhammad from this point onwards, immigrated with his entire family as refugees. And they settled in a city about half an hour away from Toronto called Mississauga. Mississauga has a diverse population. This is also the home of over 40,000 Pakistanis. And this makes up about 5.8% of the total population of the city. The family lived in a spacious home on Longhorn Trail. 
Muhammad was the head of the family and was responsible for providing for everyone. He had eight children of his own, his wife, three daughter-in-laws, and two grandchildren all living under one roof. Muhammad was a cab driver, which is a common occupation for newcomers in Canada. Muhammad's eldest son, whose name is Muhammad Shan Pervez, worked as a taxi driver along with his father. The middle son, Ehtisham Pervez, worked as a mechanic and part-time at a restaurant, while the youngest son, Vakas, worked in a tow trucking company. Based on my research, no one in the family was educated beyond high school in Canada and all of the women of the house were financially dependent on the men. So the three sons were older, and then there were the daughters. Uh, of the daughters, two of them were married and living with their husbands, and three of them, including Aksa, were uh, living in the house. Her sister, one of her sisters, his name is Iram, she was two years older than her. Iram is one of the siblings that will be mentioned in this case over and over again. Both Aksa and Iram attended high school at Applewood Heights Secondary School, which was close by to their home. One of the conditions of being able to attend school was uh, set by Muhammad, and the condition was that the girls had to wear traditional Pakistani clothes, which means they had to wear loose-fitting shalwar kameez and they had to cover their heads with a hijab. For those who don't know, um, hijab is often referred to as a covering on the head. However, the true meaning of hijab, uh, as mentioned in the Quran, is the concept of modesty. That also means modesty in a person's eyes and not just in their attire. There are, however, many good practicing Muslim girls and women who do not cover their head, but they are still modest. According to the religion of Islam, religion comes to everyone in different ways and at different times, and sometimes it doesn't reach you at all. So Aksa's older sisters obeyed their father's wishes by wearing traditional clothing and covering their heads with their hijab. But Aksa was different. She wore the hijab but did not want to wear it and she wanted to dress just like the other girls in her school. Being a teenager in high school in, North, in a North American country, it's only natural to want to behave and dress like the other children. Aksa felt the expectations from her family went against her personal wishes but she was also aware of the strict household that she belonged to. In an interview with her friends, they stated that Aksa would show up to school in her hijab, but shortly after, she would remove it and only put it back on when it was time for her to be picked up at the end of the day. According to CTV News, some witnesses at her high school told reporters that her sister Iram, who had already graduated from Applewood's high school, would follow Aksa to school to see if she was wearing her headscarf or not, and then she would report back to her family when she saw that Aksa was without it. This obviously upset Aksa even more and caused her rebellion to increase. Tensions at home were getting worse and worse as Aksa was being forced to obey her father's wishes, and getting through high school was becoming more and more difficult for her. Some sources confirmed that the conflict at home was more complicated than Aksa's refusal to wear the hijab. She was performing poorly in almost all of her grade 11 classes, and her father felt that he was losing control over his youngest daughter. 
He wanted her to either attend an Islamic high school instead of a public high school, or he planned to have her taken out of school completely and married off to a boy of his choice back in Pakistan. In an interview with Anwar Jan, who is Aksa's mother, she told police that Muhammad had always been the one to arrange the marriages of his kids, and this was usually with their cousins. In Aksa's case, he had already chosen a boy for her in Pakistan, and the agreement between the families was already done. So I just want to remind everybody listening that at this point in time, Aksa was only 15 years old. And in my eyes, that's a baby. <laughs> so someone who I think is definitely not ready to be married, especially in North America in the 21st century. But that's just my opinion. Um, and also keep in mind that the town or the, the little, like the rural village that this family belongs to is really small. So of course, there's a lot of traditions that they're bringing that are strictly from that village, have nothing to do with Pakistan as a whole or they have nothing to do with Islam for sure but it's just the sisters got married really young um, I didn't actually I wasn't able to find specifics as to how old they were when they were married but keep in mind they were all about two maybe three years apart and Iram at this point was actually already engaged and as we can see in the case now Muhammad also had a boy picked out for Aksa so education was never important to the parents um, it was just like, get them married off, have them like move on. That was the priority. So Aksa's school vice principal and guidance counselors were notified of the situation and set up a private meeting with Aksa. When Aksa was asked by school officials whether she preferred the public uh, high school or an Islamic one, she said she wanted to stay where she was. She explained to her counselor that she was afraid of telling her father that she did not want to wear the hijab. She wanted the same freedoms as the other girls her age. She went on to tell the counselor that she did not have any privacy in her house. Even her bedroom, which was located in the basement of the home, did not have any doors. And in order to get to the other rooms in the basement, you would have to go through her room which is located right at the foot of the basement stairs. She mentioned that she did not have the freedom to talk with her friends on the phone or hang out with them after school or on the weekends. Now, according to police reports, when Aksa's body was discovered, police noticed that her room was in fact the only one in the house that did not have a door. There was a doorway that led to the hallway and a rec room from her bedroom, but the only room that it was connected to was that room of, that belonged to her parents. So they would have to essentially walk through her room in order to get to their own room. And police also wrote in their report that there were three other rooms in the home with doors, but those were being used for storage. These factors were later used in the court as aggravating factors, and I will explain what that means later on. So you can imagine here the situation, the living situation of Aksa. I mentioned that it's a pretty big house, and if she doesn't even have a door, means that she doesn't technically have a real room. It's more so just a space. In a short amount of time, Aksa's friends started noticing bruises on her arms. 
As the situation at home was worsening, Child Aid Society had to be involved. Child Aid Society is a social agency for children and youth who need protection because of abuse or neglect or risk of abuse or neglect, either physically, emotionally, or sexually. In Ontario, which is the province um, that Mississauga is located in, it is the law to report suspected child abuse and neglect, so the school officials notified CAS of AXA's situation. AXA's attendance at school began to decrease, and school officials got increasingly worried for her well-being. On September 17, 2007, a mediation was set up between AXA, her father, the school officials, and CAS. At this meeting, Aksa told her father that she did not want to wear the hijab or the traditional Pakistani clothing to school anymore. And her father clearly stated that he would not allow this. He said, quote, Main is ghar ka malik hoon. Sare faisle main karta hoon. Aur mere bachche wohi karte hain jo main kehta hoon. This translates to, I am in control of my house. I make all of the decisions and my children do as I say." Unquote. So again, that's not actually as surprising as some of our listeners might find it to be. This is typically the unspoken reality in many Pakistani households, unfortunately. Granted, in Canada, people are more aware of their rights and freedoms. But those living in villages or smaller rural areas within Pakistan, as I had mentioned, that this family belonged to, they are more privy to this sort of family structure. So I don't think that was anything new for Aksa. It was definitely new for her, for the people in this meeting, including the principal and the CAS. According to the Hamilton Spectator, the day after this meeting, Aksa ran away from home for the very first time and she stayed at a shelter with the help of a non-profit agency for immigrants called India Rainbow Community Services. When Aksa did not return home from school that evening, Muhammad called the police and reported his daughter missing. During the next couple of days, Aksa and Iram's common friend named Amal Tahir, who was well aware of Aksa's uh, whereabouts, had mentioned to Iram where Aksa was living. Iram handed a letter to Amal to give to Aksa, and in this letter, Iram mentioned um, to her sister that she had to return home. She begged her sister. She wrote that their father will agree to anything Aksa wants or doesn't want as long as she returns home. And then, of course, this emotional blackmail brought Aksa right back home after spending three nights in the shelter. According to Aksa's schoolmates, they said that Aksa preferred to be in the shelter instead of being at home. So let's just pause for a second and think about how bad the situation at home might have been for her to say she would rather live at a shelter than at home. She must have really felt threatened and unsafe. I can imagine how isolated she might have felt with her brothers and her sisters too because she ran away from home. And in the Pakistani culture, girls simply don't run away. It's considered very, very taboo. So upon returning home, Aksa's mother, Anwar, took her daughter shopping and she brought her 
uh, Western clothes, quote unquote, such as pants, tops, sweaters, and all of the other casual attire that she would then be allowed to wear at school. Over the next three months prior to Aksa's murder, her friends uh, were made well aware of the continued tensions at home. Aksa was not allowed to hang out with her friends. She was expected to return home from school immediately. She was not given any of the freedoms that she had asked for. She was not even allowed to get a part-time job. And this caused Aksa to start skipping even more classes. And her marks began to drop significantly, which soon resulted in a suspension from school, followed by letters to her parents notifying them of her absenteeism. So this was a big problem because the school system over here, of course, assumes that the guardians or the caregivers or the parents are well aware or they should be well aware of what's going on in school. And in this case, Aksa started skipping classes. So when the school contacted her family, letting her know of her absence, that definitely did not go, go well. So on November 19th, 2007, another mediation session was set up. But this time, it would be between Aksa, her father, her mother, and India Rainbow, who was the nonprofit agency who helped Aksa uh, stay at the shelter. So at this meeting, Muhammad was very angry. He said he didn't understand why his daughter was performing poorly at school, despite him allowing her to wear Western clothes at school and continue to attend public school instead of the Islamic one that he wanted her to attend. During the mediation, he angrily said, quote, Aurtein apna muh khol sakti hain kyunke unke haq hain. Lekin agar yehi aurat Pakistan mein hoti, uski mijal nahi hoti ki wo apna muh kholti. This translates to, women are able to open their mouths because they have rights. But if the same woman was in Pakistan, she wouldn't dare to open her mouth, unquote. He went on to explain how he still used physical force with his adult sons. And the counselor cautioned Muhammad about the use of physical force. But Muhammad was unfazed by this. Anwar just kept crying throughout the meeting and Aksa mostly stayed quiet and looked down. So his, all of his sons are married. And if he's still using physical force and boasting about it, like that's a huge problem. I don't understand why no one thought to call the police and complain about Muhammad's self-admitted behaviors and actions with his kids. What I don't get is, were these not enough red flags for school officials or counselors to alert the authorities to take appropriate actions? Did they not think that this was serious? Was it really a smart idea, basically, at the end of it? Was it a smart idea to send Aksa home with a father who openly admitted to physically disciplining his grown-ass children? Like, it just does not make any sense. And it's very upsetting. By the end of November, Aksa decided to run away from home for a second time. <laughs> Go, girl. She confided in her friends and told them that her father was, quote, swearing on the Quran that if she ever ran away again, he would kill her, unquote. So her friends assured her that nothing of this sort would happen. They said no father would actually kill their child. On November 29th, 
Aksa packed her bags with the intention to never return home. Her mother became suspicious of Aksa's intentions to not return home. Aksa took a large bag with her uh, to school that morning and she made arrangements with one of her close girlfriends to spend the night at her house. This girl's older brother was someone that Aksa had a crush on. The next day, she went to school and again did not return home. Instead, she spent another night at that same friend's house. So, fast forwarding a little bit, a week before the murder, Aksa's friend Amal Tahir, who was Pakistani, who was um, well aware of the situation and who was also common friends with uh, Iram, she told Aksa that Aksa was welcome to stay at her house anytime instead of going to a shelter. Aksa took Amal up on that offer and over the next couple of days, Aksa stayed with the Tahirs. Mrs. Lubna Tahir, who was Amal's mother, also had five daughters of her own and being a Pakistani, she sympathized with Aksa very much. Aksa started going to school regularly. She told her guidance counselors about her new residence and the guidance counselors finally changed Aksa's address in the school records. Aksa was in the process of building a resume. She expressed her desire to get a part-time job because she was looking forward to starting her new life. The next day, Muhammad reported Aksa missing to the police. He said that he had an argument with her about school, which led to her running away from home. Meanwhile, Aksa was feeling a lot more relaxed being with the Tahirs. Aksa and Amal's younger sister visited another common friend, and that friend ended up betraying Aksa's trust. She let Iram know that Aksa was staying with the Tahirs, and of course, Iram told her mom and her dad. Now, this is strictly my opinion, but we've heard a lot of times in this case so far. Iram truly is the family snitch. Like, I'm sorry to say it, she gets information that she could easily keep to herself or be like, you know what, more power to my sister as long as she's safe and she's okay, that's fine. But no, Iram always has to go to her parents and she always has to reveal what's happening. So Muhammad, Anwar, and Iram ended up at the Tahir residence and Lubna Tahir encouraged Aksa to speak to her parents. This emotional meetup resulted in Anwar and Muhammad ultimately crying and begging their daughter to come home. However, Aksa spoke very little to her family members and when she did speak, it was to let her parents know that she wanted them to leave and that she was very happy living under the care of the Tahirs. This must have felt like a huge slap of embarrassment for Muhammad. However, he thanked the Tahirs for looking after their daughter, and soon enough, Aksa's family left. That same day, Aksa, Amal, and another friend all went to the movies with Mrs. Tahir's permission, and Aksa started to feel so much happier and so much more relaxed. Over the next couple of days, there were numerous attempts by Aksa's family to try and convince her to come home. Muhammad even set up another meeting with his daughter at a coffee shop where he brought his other daughter, Shamsa, who I had mentioned is older than Iram, and one of his daughter-in-laws, Shazia, um, in an effort to try to help convince Aksa to return home. Muhammad made promises to Aksa that he would do whatever it takes to have her back home. 
He even offered to give Aksa her own apartment in the basement of their home and he would give her an allowance of $100 each month. Now that might seem like a lot, but it's not. <laughs> so Aksa was smart. She rejected this offer. The next day, Shazia made another attempt to convince Aksa to come home by showing up at the Tahir residence with some of Aksa's clothes. Now this upset Aksa a lot because none of the clothes given included pants, shirts, sweaters, or quote-unquote Western clothing. They were all shawar kameez. Shazia went on to tell Aksa that she needs to come home as her father's health is deteriorating due to all of the stress she has caused and is causing her family members. Aksa didn't pay much attention to Shazia's words and she did not go to visit her father. Iram, aka the family snitch, <laughs> found out that Aksa had gone to the movies with Amal and since this was a big no-no for the Purvey's women, Iram went straight to her family with this information. On the morning of December 10th, 2007, Aksa and Amal got ready for school and walked to the bus stop. The bus was scheduled to pick them up at 7.20 a.m. But just a few minutes before that, Amal saw a green Dodge Caravan approach Aksa and her. This was the Purvey's family van. Aksa and Amal both saw Vakas, Aksa's brother, in the driver's seat. Now, Vakas is the youngest of, of all the brothers, but still older than all of the sisters. Aksa handed her books to Amal and annoyingly said, quote, I'll be right back, unquote. As Aksa walked over to the green van, the school bus arrived and Amal got on the bus. She turned back to look at Aksa, but the van had already left and Aksa was nowhere to be seen. The Purvey's home was about a five-minute drive from the bus stop. Vakas took Aksa home, and at 7.56 a.m., Muhammad made that 911 call to the police saying that he had killed his daughter. This brings us right back to the start of our episode. When the Peel police arrived at the Purvey's family home, no one appeared to be on the main floor of the house. The police proceeded to the basement where they found Aksa's lifeless body facing up on the bed with no vital signs. They performed CPR on her in an effort to revive her, but that didn't work and Aksa was immediately rushed to the hospital. Another officer made his rounds interviewing all of the family members. Muhammad Pervez identified himself and told the officers that it was him who made the call. He was immediately placed under arrest. The rest of the family was scattered in the basement and upstairs floor of the house. Police noticed that Iram and Shamsa's bedroom was just steps away from Aksa. So when they were asked if they saw or heard anything, both the girls said they were asleep and didn't see or hear anything. Police continued to ask the family members questions about what had happened and everyone said the same thing. They only heard about what had happened after Muhammad announced to the family that he had killed Aksa. Each family member was present in the home when police arrived, except for Vakas, who was nowhere to be seen. When asked about his whereabouts, his wife Uzma said that he was at work. It wasn't until closer to 8.30 a.m. that morning when Vakas arrived home in his tow truck. Now let's just analyze this for one quick second. How could it be that Vakas wasn't home? According to Amal's witness account, 
She saw Vakas in the green Dodge van near the bus stop, and she also heard Aksa complain about how she couldn't believe her brother showed up. And plus, she knew Aksa went with him at the exact same time the bus came. So between 7:20 a.m. and 7:56 a.m. is the window of time in which Vakas would pick Aksa up from the bus stop, drop her home, and then go to his place of work all the way near Square One Shopping Center, which was about a 10-minute drive from their home. After hours of being on life support, Aksa was pronounced dead at Toronto's Sick Kids Hospital. During an autopsy of Aksa's body, the forensic pathologist Dr. Toby Rose concluded that Aksa died from a neck compression. When police interviewed Anwar Jan, she was crying and shouting and talking to herself. In a recorded conversation, Anwar said, quote, उन्होंने कहा था कि वो सिर्फ उसकी टांगें या हाथ काट देंगे लेकिन उन्होंने तो उसको मार ही दिया दिस ट्रांसलेट्स टू ही वॉज ओनली गोइंग टू ब्रेक ब्रेक हर लेग्स एंड आर्म्स बट इंस्टेड ही किल्ड हर स्ट्रेट अवे अनकोट इन दैट सेम इंटरव्यू शी टोल्ड पुलिस दैट इन हर कम्युनिटी इन पाकिस्तान इफ अ डॉटर डिसोबेज हर पेरेंट्स शी गेट्स पनिश्ड आदर बाई बींग थ्रोन आउट ऑफ द हाउस और बींग किल्ड She went on to say that Muhammad made a statement to her in defense of his honor saying his community will say he was not able to control his daughter which would be a big insult and he felt that this would humiliate him greatly Each family member was interviewed by investigators and not one of the nine adults in the house at the time of the murder stepped up as a witness When Vakas was interviewed, he told police that he had not seen Aksa since the week before the morning of the murder. So, <laughs> that's clearly a lie. He said he was sleeping in his tow truck near the Square One shopping mall. He claimed that he only arrived home that morning after he received a call from his older brother telling him about what had happened. Again, such lies. That same day, Upon further investigation and witness accounts of Vakas's whereabouts, he was charged with obstructing police, which means he lied to the police and presented a false alibi which could harm the investigation significantly. Meanwhile, Muhammad was charged with first-degree murder. Here I will explain the definition of first-degree murder. This is when murder is planned and deliberate. It will be considered first-degree when it is committed against a police officer, a correctional officer, or a person of authority, or when there is a crime committed within a crime. So for example, an abduction takes place and in the process of that criminal act, the perpetrator murders the person that they have abducted. In this case, Aksa's murder was planned and deliberate and would fall under the first degree category. The prison sentence for first degree murder in Canada is life imprisonment meaning no chance of parole for 25 years Muhammad was denied bail and Vakas was initially ordered by his father to not cooperate with the police although he was in their custody so <laughs> even though Muhammad has been caught and he is going to be charged or he's been charged with first degree murder look at the power that he still holds or wants to hold over his son Vakas he's saying don't cooperate with the police 
So Vakas was soon granted bail, but his passport was confiscated so um, that he was not able to leave the country. But I feel, and again, this is just my opinion, had the passport still been in his possession, he most likely would have fled either back to Pakistan or some other country seeking refuge. And I feel like him not having his passport in this case did end up proving to be a good thing. A public funeral was supposed to be held at a mosque in Mississauga, and an anti-Muslim activist named Pamela Geller hoped to donate a gravestone in memorial. However, just hour before the public funeral was to be held, Aksa's family decided to opt for a private funeral instead of uh, instead for just privacy reasons, and refused the gravestone donated by Pamela. Aksa was buried in the Meadowvale Cemetery in Mississauga. Among some of the evidence collected at the scene of the crime was Aksa's blood found on the palm of Muhammad's hands. But here's the twist. DNA was found under Aksa's fingernails, and that DNA belonged to none other than Vakas, the brother who claimed to not even be present at the time of the murder. Not only was her DNA found under her fingernails, but her DNA was also found on the shoulder of Vakas's black leather jacket. The poor girl fought for her life. The way I think is that one held her down and the other choked her. And in that process of her being choked, of course she scratched her brother, who I'm assuming is the one who physically had his hands around her neck. I'm assuming the father must have tried covering her mouth so that she couldn't scream as per the reports from or the investigation uh, interviews with the family members nobody heard anything i i don't believe that but i feel like he muffled her screaming and that's why he had blood literally on his hands based on this bombshell evidence vakas was also charged by the police with first degree murder on june 27 2008 which was a little over six months after the murder took place. On the day of the trial, outside of the court, Aksa's eldest brother, Muhammad Shan Pervez, told reporters that he wasn't sure exactly what led to his sister's death, but added that his mother, Anwar Jan, was sick because of this ordeal. During the trial, the Crown Prosecutor argued that this was a classic case of killing in the name of honor or honor killing as widely known. Crown Prosecutor Mara Basso highlighted Mohammed Barbez as an individual with his own pathological and uncontrolled desires for power. And that was evident as Aksa was oppressed by her patriarchal father in a country like Canada, where everyone, especially women, have the most rights. However, defense lawyer for Mohammed named Joseph Sirocco said, quote, Muhammad tried to salvage the relationship with his daughter. He made many attempts to speak to school officials. She ran away twice and he went to the police to ask for help to look for her. These are things that are not consistent with a father seeking to avenge pride for his family, unquote. Vakas's lawyers, Joseph Neuberger and Stacy Nichols, argued that this was mainly a case of domestic violence, although cultural issues were at play. According to the Hamilton Spectator, in his testimony in court, 
Vikas told the court that he had discussed the tensions in his house with his co-workers at the truck towing company they worked for. He told one particular friend, Steve Warda, about his plan to kill his sister. And he even asked his friend if he could get him a gun. Now this proves the premeditation of the murder and all the planning that went into the desire to end Aksa's life. According to police reports, these conversations with Steve Warda were recorded. He admitted, he as in Vakas, admitted choking his sister to death and said the guilt of it is killing him. He said he couldn't get his sister's image out of his head. He also told Steve that only he and his father were involved in the murder, but the whole family knew what was going on. Another co-worker told the court that the days leading up to the murder, Vakas was not acting like himself. And he was, when he was asked what was bothering him, he mentioned that his father was very controlling and he was afraid he would find out of, about Vakas's ear piercing and his drinking habits. He also told his co-worker that he did not have his father's permission to divorce his wife Uzma. He wanted to send Uzma back to Pakistan and get this, he wanted to marry a woman in Canada that Vakas was interested in. According to Vakas's cell records, this woman was the last person to communicate with him at 4.47 a.m. the morning of the murder. And when she tried calling him between 6 o'clock and 7.30 that morning, he did not answer his phone. That's all we know about this woman. But I have to say, I cannot believe Vikas, who was technically tarnishing his own family's honor with his affair and his drinking and how dare he get a piercing. <laughs> he had the audacity to take his sister's life? I mean, from that perspective, Technically, Vakas should also have been killed by the hands of the father or the elder brothers because he was clearly doing things not approved by the family. But I'm just so angry that he had this hidden life and he still took matters regarding Aksa in his own hands, like literally. And I feel like Vakas agreed to kill Aksa as almost like an offering to his father to compensate for his own disobedience. That's what it seems like. After hearing Vakas's testimony, Anwar John, Aksa's mother, was in court begging for mercy for her son and her husband. She says she still loves them very much. Now, <laughs> I just don't understand the mother who ha has now heard all of this. She still has sympathy and empathy for her son. Fine, I get it with the husband because she's been brainwashed her entire life to, you know, husband is the the mighty you know it's be all end all sort of a situation but this is two children from the same parents one has died at the hand of the others and that son has just confessed to all this other stuff that he has done how is she still so empathetic and how why is she still wanting mercy for this son if anything she should tell the court i've lost my daughter and you know my son is very guilty and she should actually work for the crown instead of working in their defense but when like when was the mom gonna step in when was she gonna come in and be protective of her daughter was she ever gonna do that i feel like she wasn't because she i think equally wanted this to happen she equally wanted to get rid of 
aksa because of all this dishonor and again something silly that i think is which like what would have happened what would have been the worst case scenario aksa would have ran off and continued living with the tahers maybe gotten you know her job and whatever like that dishonor is so much less than the dishonor that now this case and the courts and the the prisons and all of that is going to bring on the family why weren't these people using their brain that's what it comes down to the court also heard about the conditions in which aksa was expected to live such as the bedroom with no door no privacy the fact that aksa was not allowed to even wear western clothes to school she wasn't allowed to get a job the fact also that her father had arranged her marriage with a boy from pakistan without aksa's consent these were all considered aggravating factors meaning they made a stronger case for the prosecutor and the judge would then use these factors in his sentencing so on june 15th 2010 now we're a couple years after the incident actually occurred both father and son ended up taking a guilty plea in which they were able to bring down their first degree charge to second degree this is a lesser charge in which the minimum sentence is life imprisonment with no parole but until 10 years now in mohammed and vakas's case they were both sentenced to life imprisonment with no eligibility for parole until 2028 or 18 years after the murder took place and this would put them both at a full term release date of roughly 2035 and the superior court justice bruce journo said quote the father literally had blood on his hands while she had her brother's dna on her fingernails unquote so both father and son were to fulfill their prison sentence in the beaver creek institute in gravenhurst ontario which is in the muskoka area for those familiar with ontario it's actually a beautiful area this is a minimum to medium secu- security prison In Canada, honor killings were not so common in the Pakistani Muslim community. So this case sparked a lot of controversy and outrage and caused families to have that conversation about the hijab and what honor killing means and whether Islam even allows it. Atiya Ehsan, who was a representative from the Canadian Council of Muslim Women, said, quote, "When you come across parents who think that wearing that piece of fabric on their head somehow makes them more spiritual or more of a practicing muslim i think that's a fallacy and it causes needless conflict in the family she goes on to say what's more important is that a young woman or any muslim adheres to the core values of their faith and what the hijab represents dignity protection and grace unquote over the years there have been more honor related crimes in canada but they are not limited to pakistani or muslim women there are a handful of cases involving sick women from india women and young children from afghanistan even in the tamil community however there have also been international cases of honor related crimes in germany britain sweden and other imperialist countries in these cases tarnished honor quote unquote could result in a forced abortion or murder due to having more than more daughters than sons extramarital affairs women wanting independence in their choice of job 
or marriage and even sometimes even as ridiculous as feeling that your child is a product of incest or rape although it definitely is not oppression and violence against women is prevalent in all cultures and races including christianity and hinduism and date back to prehistoric times one of the head imams of the calgary islamic center Sayyid Soharwardi, who was the national president of Islamic Supreme Council of Canada at the time, went on a two-day hunger strike to denounce family violence, and he said that this is completely against the teachings of Islam. I agree. Calgary is another province of Canada, thousands of miles west from Ontario. It has a large Muslim population. It's not nearly as large as Ontario's Muslim population, but it does house many 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 muslims muhammad al-nadui who at the time of this incident was the vice president of the canadian council of imams called the murder un-islamic and he denounced the act there was an award-winning documentary made in 2010 called in the name of the family and aksa's death was profiled by shelley saywell she is a Canadian award-winning documentary filmmaker. I encourage everybody to check out that documentary. Apart from the honor aspect of this murder, one thing I feel strongly about is how Aksa was failed, not only by her family, but by her friends, the friends of her family, the co-workers of her brother, the education system, child protective services, and the entire social service sector in Canada, including the police. CAS should have never allowed Aksa to go back to that house, especially after they themselves met Muhammad and saw how much anger he had towards his daughter. That's my opinion and my perspective, but I definitely agree and believe that Aksa was not given the justice that she deserved and she was also failed completely. After the trial, the family sold their Longhorn Trail home, but there are no accounts of where they moved. Vakasa's wife Uzma did return to Pakistan and she never came back. I mean, I don't blame her. The first she heard of her husband's affair was after the murder of her sister-in-law and was, at, was in court with so many other people as a witness. In 2017, shortly after seven years of being in prison, Muhammad Barbez died for reasons undisclosed and unknown. Some say natural causes, as he claimed to have a heart condition, and that was stated by Muhammad's lawyer back when the trial first began. Muhammad was 67 years old when he died. Vagas is still serving his sentence at Beaver Creek Institute. And that brings us to the end of our episode. Please don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Crime Stories of Pakistan for some case footage and visuals. You can also send us an email with case suggestions at Crime Stories of Pakistan at hotmail.com. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share. Your feedback and comments mean the world to us. From your hosts, Naz and Jahan. Join us again next time for another crime story of Pakistan. And until then, 
Stay compassionate, stay curious, but stay out of trouble. <laughs>